Hi, I'm Cody Goff, and this is Game Life Balance US. This is a board game special. I'm just going to launch right into my favorite board games of Gen Con 2018, which I was able to attend. My trusty sidekick, co-host Jonathan Martin, was not able to attend Gen Con this year, so he has nothing to say about it or the games that were played at it. And, I mean, maybe he does have something to say, but if he does, I don't really care, and I'm not particularly interested. I'm Jamie, a.k.a. Scumboy. I'm Andrew Walsh, a.k.a. Bat Phantom. I'm Kevin, a.k.a. Neon Nazgul from the Operation Pug Podcast. A proud member of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're listening to now. The opinions expressed are those of each individual host. Check out all the podcasts at GunnaGeekNetwork.com and get ready because geekiness begins in three, two, one. Be a little bit different than our usual episode. By the way, I'll give an update on John and the show and all that stuff at the end of, the, of, of this episode. But uh, but I really just want to get straight into the games. So this is gonna be a weird list. I'm gonna give you my top five favorite games that I played at Gen Con 2018. But two of them are unreleased. One is an unreleased board game, and one is an unreleased expansion to an existing board game. So I want to give you five links to games that you can get right now to get your board game fix. If two are unreleased, then that's no good. So I'm going to give you my top three released games and two unreleased games, plus the top two games I heard about that are available right now. I know that's weird and kind of dumb. I don't really care. It's my podcast. I can do what I want. (laughs) So enjoy that. So... Yeah, Gen Con 2018, world's largest gaming convention in Indianapolis, Indiana. We talk about it on this podcast all the time. If you're not familiar, just go to GenCon.com. It's called GenCon for Lake Geneva, which is where it used to be. Geneva, Gen, G-E-N. That's how you spell it. It was in Wisconsin for many, many years, and then they outgrew Milwaukee and moved to Indianapolis, and that was like 12 or 13 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever. And uh, it's been in Indianapolis ever since. I go every year with all my best friends. It was a smaller Gen Con than usual this year in terms of my friend group. John couldn't make it and a couple of our other friends couldn't make it. So those of us that did make it, we just got to know each other that much better and play that many more games and better games and talk trash about everybody that couldn't make it, which is the highlight of any gathering of friends, frankly. So yeah, I'm just gonna launch into the list. Without further ado, the first thing I want to talk about, this is going to be my number five that I played, but it's not available commercial right now, is an expansion to the Seven Wonders board game by Asmodee. Seven Wonders is one of my favorite board games because not only does it support up to seven players, but every player takes his or her turn simultaneously. And that's so cool because you... With my group of friends, you've got that one gamer, sometimes two, actually, that just take forever to strategize. And if you're in a five or four or even three-person board game, having to wait an eternity for that person to take their turn plus everyone else to take their turns, even if they're really fast, it can be maddening. But with Seven Wonders, hey, listen, that one guy, as soon as they're done, it's your next turn because... They're the last person to go, and everyone goes at once. I've talked about Seven Wonders on the show before, so you can look at our podcast archive if you're interested in learning more about that game. But 
What really struck me was the expansion that I played, and it's called Seven Wonders Armada. It is going to be available, I think they said it would be November in Germany and December in the US, or maybe October, November, but basically the last quarter of 2018. The Seven Wonders has a few different expansions out. There's a cities expansion, which gives you a few extra cities. It's not anything super complicated, but it adds a little bit of extra variety to the game. And then there's Seven Wonders Leaders, which adds a leaders phase and different leaders that you can play kind of at the start of each age of your civilization. That's a really popular expansion. A lot of people really love leaders. I own leaders and I play with leaders most of the time when my friends and I play. Then there is Seven Wonders Babel. Now, I didn't know this, but I've played Seven Wonders Babel before, but it kind of disappeared. Like, I feel like I had a friend that used to have Babel, and we would play a few games with Babel, and then we just stopped playing it, and Babel never came up again, and I just, like, I keep forgetting that Babel exists. Well, when you go to a gaming convention and you get a tape, you sit at a table full of strangers who are really, really interested in trying an expansion to a game, turns out that those people are really big fans of the original game, the base game, Seven Wonders, and they've played it a lot and they know a lot about it. And the consensus at my table when I demoed Seven Wonders Armada was that Seven Wonders Babel is kind of the Black Sheep expansion that it just isn't very popular. And perhaps board game geek consensus is that it's not that good. So let's skip Babel and go on to Armada. So Leaders, great expansion. Cities, good expansion. Babel, not such a great expansion. And that brings us to Armada. Armada adds a separate board to the game and for each player, actually. And right off the bat, you think about that and you're like, all right, it just makes the game more complicated. Not good, not good at all. However, I give this five stars out of five, 10 stars out of 10. I mean, this, this expansion is the perfect designed expansion to add another dimension to Seven Wonders, but not overly complicated. I won't explain all the game mechanics, but essentially there are there are four tracks of boats, and whenever you play a card whose color corresponds with one of those tracks, you advance the boat, and then you get bonuses as the boat advances. What's cool about this is that throughout the course of the game, Seven Wonders, there's five or different, five or seven or six or so, different oh seven would be appropriate there's seven or so victory conditions you can play green cards to get points for science red cards to get points for military yellow cards to get points for commerce etc blue points for just building i don't know buildings i guess and getting points you're playing these cards anyway that's that's literally the game all this does with this second board with the ships is you might glance over there and be like well I've got a crappy hand. It's got a blue, a green, and a yellow card. I'm not really going for any of these victory conditions. But if I play one in advance of this boat, and then it helps me with a different victory condition, etc., etc. It's just, it's so intuitive, and it's so easy to glance at, and it doesn't complicate the game, but it adds a dimension. And the most important thing about this expansion is that it addresses the number one issue our friend Icebag John has a Seven Wonders. His problem with the game is that in larger groups, once you get past four or five people, there's very little player interaction with the table at large, with with the uh, with everyone that's playing. 
the interactions end up just being with your neighbor. And again, in a game of seven people, it's like, well, there's only so much you can do to engage with other people. I can't really stop a person three seats down from me from doing something unless I'm really, really planning ahead with my cards. And that, I guess, is a weakness of the game. It doesn't bother me, whatever, but it does bother some people, apparently. This game blows that out of the water because with Armada, you have a separate military force that is your naval military force, I suppose, and that engages with every player in the game. So right off the bat, that fixes that problem, and again, it adds that extra dimension and that extra layer. You're also interacting a lot with all the players in the table with commerce. You end up taking a lot more of their money. You end up having to have a commerce level that acts as kind of a commercial defense against other trade deals. So it's just very well fleshed out. It's super well balanced. It was amazingly fun the first time I played it. And I highly recommend that. Seven Wonders Armada, you can find links to Seven Wonders and the Seven Wonders Leaders expansion, which are available right now in the description of this podcast. But definitely, definitely consider Armada when it comes out. It is not another babble. Now, that game's not out, so I'm going to put on my top five list another game that my friends played extensively that they were pretty much obsessed with all weekend, and that game is called Azul. Azul has an 8.0 on Board Game Geek. It's by Plan B Games. I watched a tutorial video on how to play. I didn't really entirely understand it. It has something to do with placing tiles. Seems very strategic. Obviously, it's a board game, so it's strategic, but... When I say tr- strategic, I mean like in in a in a kind of simple, accessible way. Um, all of my friends are raving about this game, and that's all I can really tell you about it. So go watch a video of it. Again, it's got an eight on Board Game Geek. It's by Plan B Games, and that's out right now. So you can find links to that. I probably shouldn't just randomly, haphazardly mention games I've never played before, but like I said, it's my podcast. I can do what I want. All right, number four on my list of favorite things. This actually might have been the most fun I had playing a game at Gen Con, but I played a demo of Dragon Ball Z The Board Game Saga is the name of this game. It's by Linvander Studios, and I was demoing an early build of this game, and apparently this game has a very, very strange history that I did not know about before the convention. So, before the convention, I signed up for a lot of games, which I don't usually do at Gen Con, but I decided this year, let's try some new board games, see what happens. And my friend Will was very skeptical. He was like, mm, I've never heard of this Dragon Ball Z, the board game. I've never heard of this Linvander Studios. Mm, I'm not sure it'll be good. Oh, no, that was Hail Hydra he was talking about. Never mind. There was another game I demoed by an unknown studio, and he's like, I am skeptical. I bet it'll be bad. That wasn't this. Um, but Dragon Ball Z, the board game saga. Uh, Linvander Studios, I'm not super familiar with a lot of their games, but they do have an extensive collection. Apparently, this game was originally in conjunction with Jasco Games, and it was demoed last year at Gen Con 2017. I looked up the website, I looked up reviews of this game from Gen Con 2017, and it is literally nothing in any way at all like the demo that I played. So I don't know what happened last year, but Gen Con 2017, they had a playable demo of a now unrecognizable game in conjunction with another company, and it was slated for a Q4 release in 2017. 
and now I played the demo in 2018. I don't know anything about Jasco Games. I didn't see it mentioned anywhere. And it says it's slated for release in Q4 2018. So here's hoping, knock on wood, that they do a better job of actually releasing the game this year than they did last time, because I don't know what the full story is. What I can tell you is that the demo I played was extremely fun, and what the staff that were the staff running the event told me that they're hoping for release at the end of this year. Right now they're waiting for approval on images from probably Bandai or whoever owns the the license in the US to Dragon Ball Z. I, I, you know they're talking about, so like they design a Krillin card, they put a photo of Krillin on it, they write the little tax flavor text, they send it off to the brand people and the brand and marketing people then have to look at the card and be like, okay, is this the right image for Krillin out of the 300 series of Dragon Ball or Dragon Ball Z that we want to use? Is this the right flavor text? Do we have a different quote? So marketing's got to get all that approval stuff or whatever. So the game version that I played they literally sleeved magic cards and had printed like on just a color printer they'd printed these cards and inserted them so that they felt heftier and they had the working art on them so i that's the way it was dragon ball z the board game saga is a co-op board game where you play as the good guys from the dragon ball z anime and you fight the bad guys you go through Supposedly in the final game, you'll go through all of the sagas. So in the first one, you fight Nappa and then Vegeta. And supposedly later on, you'll fight Frieza, presumably Cell, perhaps Majin Buu. I'm not sure if they're going that far, if they're stopping with Frieza or Cell saga. But they're basically bosses that you kind of go through in this. And you go through multiple sagas of the Dragon Ball Z series, essentially. Like I mentioned, it's a co-op game. And it was just, it was super fun. It was super fun. I demoed it with my friend Logan and some random stranger. It's supposed to be four of us, but uh, fourth person never showed up. So I got to play as two characters. Ha ha! I, I want to note also, I mentioned that all the sagas will be in, included in the final version of this game, supposedly. What they did was they walked us through the first saga, that we got to demo the first saga. So we got to demo fighting Nappa, sorry, fighting Raditz, then fighting Nappa, then fighting Vegeta, and then that was it. Yeah, presumably there's more to the game, but whatever. And by giving us a limited experience, they gave us limited cards. So there were certain abilities where it was like there was only one level one ability available for everybody to take once they reach a certain level. Whereas in the final game, there will be several. For this reason, I think the game is probably a little less well-balanced than the full version will be. I'm presuming they play-tested this game with 500 cards, let's say, and then they're like, all right, let's give people a dumbed-down experience. All right, all the phase one cards are, all right, that's like 80 cards. All right, now we got 80 cards. All right, what 80 cards can we you know, just pull to make it the best kind of first-time entry-level experience, nothing too complicated, nothing with too much flavor text. And then we ended up with these kind of like mini distillation decks for the game and then that's what we played with so that aside even knowing that we were just playing with a chunk of a game it was super fun and i gotta tell you they know how to use a license holy crap the dragon ball z license is used so unbelievably well here and everything is crafted to be so true to the the experience of dragon ball z it, it's out of control effectively your characters all have 
power level that they're trying to raise during the game. You can gain items, you can gain ally cards, and you can power up, you can raise your energy level and and all that. But it, it all just works so well. For example, in Dragon Ball Z, the whole idea of Saiyans, the whole idea of everybody really, but the whole idea of Saiyans is take a bunch of damage and then once you're healed, you'll get stronger. Cool. That's literally how it works in this game. When you take damage, it raises your stress level, which can go from 1 to 10. And if your stress level surpasses 10, you die. If it doesn't, and you can do it in time, you can fly to a place to train. You reduce your stress level to zero, and all those points go into your power level. That is literally Dragon Ball Z. So that that works rather well, because then sometimes you, you toe the line of like, all right, well, my stress is at six. I could try this battle, but I might die, or it might just push me really far so that when I power up, it's better. You do get a special ability once your power level is over 9,000. So they've even addressed that in the game. And there's a couple fun ways to level up. Another great use of the license. There was an ally card that one of us drew that was Chao Su, Tian's little marionette tiny friend or whatever. Chao Su, his, the Chao Su's ability is basically to... I mean, the picture is him attaching himself to, I think, Raditz or Nappa's stomach and just exploding. This self-destruct attack, which in the show doesn't even work. But the idea in here is like, oh yeah, basically Chao Su dies so that you can do damage. And that's the way the Chao Su card works. The Dragon Radar helps you pick up Dragon Balls, which serve a purpose in the game. If your character dies, here's a very fun co-op game idea. When your character dies, you go to a separate board... A small, tiny board with four stages on it called Hiffle, Home for Infinite Losers, which was the English dub translation of Hell, the afterlife where you meet King Kai and all that stuff. So even when a character dies, you can train in Hiffle and help support the team that way. And if the other characters get all the Dragon Balls, you can wish the people back to life from Hiffle. Like I said, it's just the game is so, so true to the license. My friend Logan played as Krillin. And guess what? In the main battle area, kind of in the center of the board, when you go to engage Raditz or Nappa or whoever in battle, you can be in either an active zone, which is, you know, a bunch of boulders somewhere for some reason and rocks in this desolate, empty space, or the inactive zone, which is kind of like where Yajirobe usually spends his time just kind of crouching and hiding behind rocks, which happens in the show. And Krillin and... Presumably other characters, Yamcha, for example, will be in the final release, I've been told, perhaps Tien. They stay in the inactive zone, but they give bonuses to characters while they're there. So Krillin powers up and levels up, and by just hanging out in the inactive zone and kind of being your rah-rah support guy, he gives you all these crazy bonuses. I played as Gohan and Piccolo. Piccolo had bonuses to kind of how much energy he stores up every turn. Gohan levels up faster than everyone else because he's Gohan, and that's how the show worked. Because he went Super Saiyan 2 in two sagas, and it took everyone else a ridiculous amount of time to to get there. So, all in all, phenomenal use of the license. Very fun mechanics. Very easy to understand. The difficulty level is balanced. This is a game I am legitimately considering picking up. If you're a fan of Dragon Ball Z, keep an eye on Lin Vander Studios' Dragon Ball Z, the board game saga. It's hard to keep an eye on. I don't remember if they had an email newsletter on the website, but I remember their website not being super 
easy to find stuff on. It's very strange. I don't this whole Lynn Vander Studios thing is they're they're a little they're a little odd. You can follow them on social, but I'm not sure if there's an email list. It's the website isn't divided in such a way that makes it really easy to find everything. Kind of strange, but whatever. Lynn Vander Studios, Dragon Ball Z, the board game saga. Hopefully release Q4 2018. Now again, I mentioned that's not out yet, so what's another board game that I recommend? The other board game that I'll recommend for those of you that now really want to buy something. The game of the year for the last since it came out is Gloomhaven. If you've not heard of it, then you must not be a board gamer. It was designed by Isaac Childress, and it was released via Kickstarter. It has a 9.0 on Board Game Geek. And my friend Max summed it up by saying he was, I think, in the middle of his first session with his girlfriend and a couple other people. And I think it was before they had even finished playing their first session, she said, I'm buying this right now. Or she had already gone on Amazon to purchase it. It's, I guess, kind of like a standalone Dungeons & Dragons-esque kind of dungeon crawl game that's just played with people. And I guess it's a successive campaign so you would play multiple adventures over time with the same group of people and it's not super cheap it's like 100 bucks 120 bucks to buy but every single person i've talked to about this game is pretty much obsessed with it so if you're interested in role-playing games or you want to get into like a D light kind of situation or you want to get together with friends but maybe buying a bunch of D source books and other role-playing books is a bit too much of an ask right now for you check out gloomhaven i can't say enough good things about it other than i really want to play it and i'm mad that i didn't get the chance to haven't gotten the chance to yet rather i should say all right now before i get into the top three favorite games that i played that are commercially available right now at gen con i want to mention an honorable mention because it's not a game it's an expansion i played terraforming mars prelude with a couple of my friends terraforming mars we've also talked about on this podcast. I love Terraforming Mars. It's a super addicting game by Stronghold Games. You terraform Mars, surprise, surprise. It's an industry manufacturing game, card drafting, tile placements, whatever. Terraforming Mars is super fun. Prelude is designed to make the game go by a bit more quickly. Sometimes games of Terraforming Mars go three, four hours. This is designed to make it go faster. We did not play by all the rules, when you're playing with certain expansions, you're actually supposed to advance tracks automatically to make the game go faster, and we didn't do that. So we played with this expansion meant to speed up the game, but at the same time, we slowed down the game by not obeying all the rules. So it still ended up taking us about three hours to play, but it was super fun. What I liked about Terraforming Mars Prelude is that you start basically with two cards that just boost you, so you can start doing more stuff right away. There's not that first few turns of like, okay, well, I can buy two cards and play them and that's my turn. Like, you're like, you're in it when you play with Prelude because you're just already jump-started and it's like, oh, holy crap, I can buy five cards. I can play all these cards. So this gets you in the action more quickly and we loved it. So if you own Terraforming Mars, Prelude is a must have, I want to say. We also played with the Venus expansion, which is quite good, but I don't think it's as fundamentally important to the game experience as Prelude. So I'd say if you're going to get one, get Prelude first. Venus is also good, but Prelude has an 8.6 on Board Game Geek. So Terraforming Mars Prelude. Very, very good. 
any game that makes a, a longer game a little more fun and accessible and and fast paced, I think is a good thing. All right, my top three games that I played at Gen Con 2018 that you can buy right now. Number three is One Deck Dungeon Forest of Shadows by Asmodee Games. I played this with my friend Will, and it's a dungeon crawl card game where you play cards in a dungeon and you have a little character card with a couple tokens on it and you fight your way up through the dungeon. Let me frame this by saying I'm not just a sucker for licensing ideas that seem fun and nostalgic. For example, I played Boss Monster or Boss Battle, the card game. I think it's called Boss Monster. I bought that and I bought the expansion and I played it like once or twice and I was like, this isn't a great game. I love the art on the cards. I love the concept. I, any Anything that takes pixel art and is like, oh yeah, NES dungeon aesthetic. Yeah, okay, I'm into that. But if it's not fun, that sucks. One Deck Dungeon was fun. And we barely won. We got to the final boss. What's cool is you've got six different colored dice and you basically are rolling them all for different things. Some are for poison and some are for physical attack and magic attack. And the difficulty is really, really well-tuned. Once you've rolled a bunch of dice, sometimes you roll like 13 dice in a turn, you, you place the dice on these cards to kind of defeat them, which means that there are different values you can put on different cards. You can arrange them in different ways. So let's say there are eight things you have to overcome, eight challenges across a couple different cards. You roll a bunch of dice. Oh, you got six passes. Cool. I can put six dice down on these cards, but how do I arrange them so that the two uncovered problems that we didn't overcome, the two uncovered traps or the two uncovered attacks or poisons or whatever, how do we cover those so that we take the least penalty, right? And that gets to be really fun. It sounds probably more lame than it sounds, but it gets to be really fun because you're like, okay, well, you know, if one of us takes poison damage, then we have to roll every turn to see if we take damage, but, like, I don't have that much health, so I shouldn't just take two health right now, so maybe roll the dice. Oh, maybe we move it around this way, so, like, you can't roll as many dice next turn, but then that could get us in trouble, so do you have to think ahead? Little decisions like that are really fun, and it was, like, super collaborative. It's kind of like a, a numbers geek game. I will say there is... I was told there's going to be a PC version of this, maybe on Steam, a digital version of this game. I don't think that'd be as fun, depending on how they let you allocate the dice. If you roll and it just auto-allocates for you and then lets you move it around, then it, like that's literally part of the fun of the game is deciding what die to put where, which sounds not fun, but it totally is. So I'm skeptical about the digital version of this game, but if you get a chance to get to try one deck Dungeon Forest of Shadows, try that. There are variants for multiple different numbers of players, and I think you can even play it single player. I considered getting it just for me, but then I was like, well, how often am I going to sit at a table and just play a, you know, a, a strategy card game by myself? Me, actually, maybe not that rarely, but I, yeah, I don't know. So, you know, I, I had already dropped enough money at Gen Con, which I'll get into, without needing to shell out 20, 25 bucks on this. But it's a really great game. And I don't have a board game geek reading on here, but I'm sure it's on there. So, One Deck Dungeon, Forest of Shadows. Number two on the games that I just loved playing is Root, a game of woodland, might, and magic by Leader Games. This has an 8.5 on Board Game Geek. This is a super, super fun, cute game. The premise is cats have taken over the forest 
and different woodland creatures want to take back the forest. And that's it. The art is really cute. It's, uh, I think, appropriate for children. But I think that it's probably a bit too advanced for a lot of children because it's an asymmetric board game. That's exactly what it sound like. sounds like. It just means that every character, every player has different abilities, different goals for winning, different victory conditions, different strengths, different weaknesses. Those are hard games to learn to play well. Chaos in the Old World is the same way. It's another game that we talk about a lot on this podcast. It's also an asymmetric game and can be very, very tricky if you don't know how to play the character you're playing. But in Root, I won, so apparently I knew what I was doing. Or I was playing as a broken character. Depends on who you ask. But that said, it is a really fun game. I played as the foxes, question mark. And they have this weird kind of like getting sympathizers in parts of the forest ability. So it's like this weird kind of guerrilla warfare rebellion kind of character personality and then my friend logan was cats and they just have hordes of cats everywhere and my other friend guy played as a bird and the birds just make nests that are disgusting because birds are gross and i don't remember what animal max played as but he kept buying items from me that i was crafting so there's there's a there's a huge amount of player interaction massive amount of player interaction in this game you're pretty much always interacting with players trying to gain control of these different parts of this the forest, the clearings in the forest. And if you want to switch things up, on the side of the board that we played, there's, let's say, 10, 12 forest locations. They each have their own different attributes. There's, I think, three different major attributes a, a forest can have. Well, if you flip over the board, there's the same number of clearings, but it's wintertime. So there's snow on everything, and there's no icons on those spaces so you can take tokens and those three categories that are predetermined and those three categories are assigned specifically to spots on the on the spring summertime side of the board you get to decide where those go on the winter side which means there's a lot of variety there's also an expansion or two for the game with new character classes but root actually gen con gen con's official email newsletter sent out a list recently of some press coverage from Gen Con 2018 with different articles on top board games people played. And at the bottom, they say, here's a list of the board games that made it on everyone's top game list. And Root was right at the top of that list. So this is nothing, you know, earth shattering news or anything. It just so happens that it's a very popular game and people were really happy about it. And eight and a half on Board Game Geek, not so bad. But I can confirm and speak to the idea that Root is a really excellent game. Again, though, I will say, our friend Sam was was tweeting at us during the convention and said, you know, well, well, is it age appropriate? Can my kids play? And I was like, look, the theme is appropriate. It's perfectly kid-friendly. But yeah, the, the strategy... And he's got smart kids, I'm sure. Sam's a smart guy. Sam's the uh, video game attorney. I've interviewed interviewed him on this podcast before. Sam's a super smart guy. I'm sure his kids are brilliant too. And, and I'm sure they can play a lot of strategy board games. But like I said, when you add the asymmetric element um, and the amount of player interaction, I think I would I would place this at a, uh, you know, at least 10 and up. I mean, you, you've got to be, you, like, you've got to be pretty able to, do a lot and handle a lot. And, and granted, I'm not great at board games, so 
so for me to say this, it's like, oh, okay, well, you know. But my friend Max even tweeted, and Max is like a board game guy, and he's very good at them and knows a lot about them, and he's just awesome. Um, even Max said, like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, the youngins could have... Just because we can play Settlers of Tan or whatever other strategy board game doesn't necessarily mean that, that this is going to be the, the the easiest game. So keep that in mind that it's less of a casual strategy board game. Probably the most difficult, complicated, advanced board game on this list, unless Azul is hard, which it doesn't sound from anything that I've read that it is. But uh, I highly recommend Root, a game of Woodland, Might, and Magic. And that brings me to my final game it's the game that I was compelled to play all weekend, yet again. This was probably my top game of MartinCon 2018, and it is Mystic Veil by AEG, which stands for Alderac Entertainment Group, in case you didn't know. This is a deck-building game. Aha! I knew that term. It's a deck-building game, where uh, effectively you, you purchase cards that then go in your deck, and then you shuffle your deck, and then later... You've either got these really high-powered cards that you bought, or you're buying more cards. That's the way it goes. What's very unique about Mystic Veil is that you get, let's say, 20 cards in your deck, and they're all in sleeves. The cards you buy are not cards. They are clear card size. Okay, they're cards, but but they're they're transparent, but they have text and abilities on either the top, center, bottom, or sidebar of the card. Which means that when you buy cards, you're not just adding a card to your deck, you're sleeving an existing card. This means if there's a card in your deck with negative effects, maybe you can sleeve a card with that that has positive effects to cancel it out. Or you can just sleeve in a card that makes it more powerful so that negative card is more worth it. Or you can double down, make it an even more negative card Give yourself a bunch of advantages, but focus all your negativity on a couple different cards and just try to avoid those. It makes the possibilities outrageous in the game. And there are 10 expansions. 10 expansions. So how am I going to talk about this? We'll go through a few of them. I can't confirm that I've played all of them, but I know a few and I know what they do and I know how much they add to the game. Mystic Veil Mana Storm has an 8.0 on Board Game Geek, and that includes new amulets. Amulets are a very simple game mechanic where basically if you screw up a turn, you get a bonus for your next unscrewed up turn. Nice little safety net. Very important to having the game. It's one of their highest rated expansions, so probably get Mana Storm if you can. Mystic Veil, Veil of the Wild has an 8.1. That's the other top rated expansion. Mystic Veil, Veil of the Wild introduces leaders. And leader cards completely change the game and give you a brand new strategy, a whole new way to kind of envision the goal of your deck. It's one of those cards, there are a lot of games like this, right, where if you get a certain card at the start of the game, you look at it and you're like, all right, I'm going to build on this and that's how I'm going to win. That's that's what this is, Veil of the Wild. It really gives you a thing to, to hone in on. And that's, that's nice to have that guidance. And it also keeps the game um, really interesting, frankly. Then there's... The expansion that we played that I want to talk about a little bit, Mystic Veil Conclave. It's only got a 7.4 on Board Game Geek, but it expands the game from four to six players, and now two players take their turn at the same time. Mystic Veil is already a pretty quick game, relatively quick game, because as the other players are taking their turn, you kind of set your field and 
prepare your next turn. So you already have your cards laid out and you kind of know what your hand is for your next turn before it even gets to you. Once you've expanded to six players, we played it with five, we played it with five. Two people go at once, one goes during the daytime and one goes during the nighttime. Don't ask me how that works in the space-time continuum because I don't know, but it's pretty fun. It, it, it does force you to pay more attention so that you know when it's your turn and when, you, you know, if, if somebody passes to you and says, all right, it's your turn now, well, you've still got to wait till that other person that's your counterpart, a couple people over, you got to wait for that person to also be ready for their turn. So you don't want to like accidentally go ahead of time. You don't want to wait too long. So you just, you just kind of watch and communicate and actually talk during a board game setting. Go figure. Holy crap. How amazing. But Mystic Conclave was really, really great. I liked the six-player action. I liked two people going at once. It was really fun. There's one other expansion I want to mention for Mystic Vale, and it's called Mystic Vale Twilight Garden. That was released in July. It does not have a rating yet on Board Game Geek, and I have not played it yet, but supposedly it adds player interaction, and that's what this game is missing. There is virtually no player interaction at all in this game. Like, at all. And that's too bad, right? It's not fun. So I am very curious about Mystic Veil vale Twilight Garden. I really want to try it and check it out and see how that player interaction goes. But that, I think, is the one big thing missing from this game. Again, I played probably half a dozen times, if not more, at MartinCon 2018. I played a few times at Gen Con. It's just a game you just want to play. It's easy. It's fast. It's really cool. And it's, I don't know, tech building games are fun for me. So I just think you should check it out. Mystic Veil. If if you're tired of playing Dominion for the 900th time, which if you're not, that's fine. I like Dominion. I'd still play Dominion. But Mystic Veil, I think, is a a really nice kind of newer, updated, cool mechanic kind of version. So that is my top uh, board games of Gen Con 2018. If you want to purchase any of them, I'll have links in, again, the prescriptions for this episode. Azul by Plan B Games and Gloomhaven from Isaac Childress, both really, really highly recommended by all my friends. And then I think One Deck Dungeon Forest of Shadows by Asmodee Games is great. Root, a game of Woodland Might and Magic by Leader Games. Fun times, great strategy board game. Definitely a little less violent and dark and prettier than Chaos in the Old World. So if you have played Chaos in the Old World, this game is better. Let's just go there. And uh, Mystic Veil, plus it's 800 expansions. (laughs) So, you know. And to kind of top off the Gen Con talk, uh, another notable mention if you're a RPG person, if you like role-playing games, I played a game called Starfinder. Pathfinder is a very, very popular role-playing game system, world, universe, whatever. Starfinder is now some kind of space variant of that. I went with all my friends, the whole Gen Con crew went to this game on Friday and we all used pre-generated characters. I was kind of a equivalent to a bard character and I was really into the role-playing element of it, which was fun for me. And Starfinder was was pretty fun. So if you're looking for like a space setting with a little bit of mystery behind it, maybe you like the Pathfinder system, I would say check out Starfinder. It's kind of weird that Starfinder is the first, the the only role-playing game I played at Gen Con, actually, because before Gen Con, I was like, all right, I'm going to play two role-playing games this year that I had a specific reason for wanting to play. 
The first was I wanted to play a two-hour adventure of Arcanus, World of Shattered Empires. Arcanus was a essentially a D&D, a Dungeons & Dragons campaign setting world with its own few source books. I played Arcanus in college. I ran an Arcanus game right when I moved to Chicago, 2007, 2008, probably with some friends, played online. I love the setting of Arcanus. It's like Dungeons and Dragons, but they make it very political. They add social hierarchies and structures, and and it's very character-based and role-playing heavy, less so on the combat, and lots of different factions. It's just a really deep, immersive world, and I love it. So I found out recently... I concluded my Lord of the Rings book club with my wife and some friends, and they mentioned Dungeons and Dragons. A couple of them said, we've never played it before. I was like, you know what? Let's play some Dungeons and Dragons. I will run a game, and I will make sure that I run it on Arcanus. Okay, so I've got all my old Arcanus source books and everything, but that's back from Dungeons and Dragons 3.0. I go to the Arcanus website. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna have to brush up. Like, what do I need? What should I do? And I find out, that back a few years ago, they created their own role-playing system, the Arcanist system, I guess, and replaced, they, they made source books for that. I was aware of that. I knew that like they, they kind of branched off from D&D. They wanted to do their own thing, have their own system. Great. But then they also released Arcanist 5e, so Arcanist 5th edition, which is just living Arcanist for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, which is the current edition of Dungeons & Dragons. For those of you that aren't like into Dungeons and Dragons, there have been various editions throughout the years. 3.0 or 3.5 is what a lot of people played for a very, very long time. It was at least a decade when I got into it. 3.1 was just like where it was at. Then Wizards of the Coast released Dungeons and Dragons 4.0, fourth edition, and not super popular. They had, I guess for lack of a better term, dumbed down some of the mechanics and simplified a lot of things. And it was described to me as more video game-like, or I guess a little more shortcutty. And it wasn't very well received. A lot of people played it. Probably people probably love it, but um, I, I think it didn't quite hit the mark necessarily. Uh, and that's reflected in the resale price because I uh, have a couple 4.0 books that I would like to sell on eBay, and they most times role-playing books like Rifts books or Dungeons and Dragons books retain a lot of their value. Not 4.0. No, I've got hard covers that are going for less than 10 bucks. So yikes. Okay, not getting a return on investment there. But fifth edition is, I guess, very popular. Fifth edition kind of like redid it right and reintroduced it to a new generation. So I didn't want to start an Arcanist 3.0, 3.5 campaign with my friends if they're not writing new adventures for it or, you know, I don't want to get in the middle of the storyline and then it gets cut off or whatever. So my goal was... Go to Gen Con, play Arcanus 5e, get used to the battle system and the rules, essentially, and the skills and the characters and all that stuff, and then come back with maybe a couple new source books and run a Dungeons & Dragons campaign with my friends. I skipped the Arcanus event. I don't even remember why. I think I was just tired of events or hungry or something happened, so just blew it off. Totally blew it off. Didn't do Arcanus at all. I did drop a ton of money, though, on their brand new hardcover campaign setting. It's a beautiful book. It's amazing art in it, like really well bound and everything. What I was a little miffed about 
is I walked over to the Arcanus booth. The company, I believe, by the way, is Paradigm Concepts. It is Paradigm Concepts. Paradigm Concepts, great company. I go up to their booth. The guy is working there. He's the same guy I talked to literally eight, nine, ten years ago about Arcanus at Gen Con. I remember this guy, right? He's like their owner or something. I go, hey, look, I'm going to be playing Arcanus with a bunch of people that are really into the role-playing heavy aspect. What'll be simpler and easier to, to pick up? The Arcanus system or the 5e system? I was like, what? give me what I need to run a campaign with my friends. He's like, I got just the thing for you. This is the campaign setting. It's got the whole world and all this, blah, blah, blah. And there's some other giant hardcover book. He, he was like, this is like, I don't know, Whisper in the Wind or some whatever. It's, uh, it's got a bunch of... A bunch of adventures and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, cool. Adventures are good. And then he's like, and this is a Kickstarter exclusive uh, convention special. We'll only sell them until we run out. And it's got two really detailed adventures in it. Uh, you might want to get this too while I get the chance. All right, fine. So drop like a hundred bucks on these three sweet bucks. So I get home. And I didn't like look at them, right? I'm like, I'm talking to the guy. I just assume he's telling the truth. So he was, uh, but with some caveats. So the Kickstarter... We'll start with the Kickstarter. The Kickstarter, which I cannot believe I bought, is two adventures, yes, for like 8th to 12th level characters. If you don't know D&D, it takes like two years of playing every few weeks to get to that level. Like, this is this is not a thing I'll probably ever get to run with my friends unless we stick with Arcanus for a while. So that was annoying. It's, it's essentially useless to me until the time if and when they get to that level this other book which i don't even remember the name of it's in the next room it's all it's all stories it's literally like oh here's the story of the world of arcanus and like a bunch of history and i don't even think there's a single adventure in there so it's like this is utterly useless to me i mean yeah it's a cool world and a setting and like i might read it for fun but i said what do i need to run a game that is not a thing i need to run a game and then the campaign setting is awesome right it's like a dungeon master's guide but for me but if you go to Paradigm Concepts' website, they have a thing called either a, a player's guide. I, pr I printed like five of them. I don't remember the name of it, but they have a separate document, like Arcana something setting, that is a free PDF on their website. It even says in a giant watermark, free, not for resale. Free is written on it. It's like a 35, 36 page PDF, much smaller than this camp. The camp or sorry, it's probably a double side printed. So there's like 60 pages or so. This campaign setting, right, is like 350 pages. So it's, it's like dense, it's intense, it's got a lot more detail and everything's more fleshed out. But the document that's free on their website contains literally everything you need to build a character. Every character class, every race, all the settings, just in a condensed version. So, like, if you want to get started with Arcanus 5e and you know 5th edition and you've got a 5th edition player's guide, literally go to Paradigm Concepts. You can download all of their adventures and character sheets and an entire, like, campaign setting guide for free and print it out instead of buying this, like, $50 to $60 hardcover, which, again, is beautiful and contains a lot of details that that free PDF doesn't contain, but, like totally unnecessary like when i said what do i need to start a 5e campaign he should have literally said go to our website and download everything for free because that's what i ended up doing i don't regret purchasing the campaign setting because 
again, there's stuff in here I'll be able to refer to. There's more detail than there was in in the other stuff. It gets more into the, some of the history and in and, and the flavor. And, like, it's a very well-done book. It's bound in such a way where it's... I don't remember how he described it, but you can lay the book flat and it won't break the spine because of the way that it's actually bound and the binding. So it's, like, really high quality. The art's all new. It's, like, a cool book. Books are cool, right? So that'll do. But... If you want to try Arcanus, you're a D&D fan. I recommend it, but don't spend money. And I was very annoyed that I did that. And then I skipped not only the Arcanus gaming session, but every RPG seminar that I had planned on going to that's like, oh, here's a refresher on how to be a dungeon master. So all this preparation I had planned to do at Gen Con, kind of pointless, but whatever. The other game I had planned on playing was a role-playing game. There's a there's a few different role-playing game systems if you're not familiar with role-playing games. There's the the D20 system, which is Dungeons & Dragons system. Lots of role-playing games use the D20 system. Turns out, if I recall correctly, you can't copyright rules to games, so technically it's all open license. You will see a lot of citations for Arcanus. Like, if I crack open the, the Arcanus book, at the back it says Open Game License Version 1, the following text is the property of Wizards of the Coast, Inc., and is copyright 2000 Wizards of the Coast. So, and this has all this copyright information there and basically saying, like, we're using their open license. So I don't know how exactly that works legally, if it's all open or if you just can't copyright rules. But either way, there's the D20 system. There's another system called GURPS, G-U-R-P-S. It's like general universal role-playing system. Holy crap, I remember that. And then there's another system called Savage Worlds, which I hadn't heard of. And I guess Savage Worlds is a very, very simplified combat system and primarily based on the Savage Worlds setting that's uh, like, a, I don't know, Wild West, but maybe more violent or more technology happy. I found out a, a couple months ago that my favorite role-playing game setting, Rifts by Palladium Books, had been translated, quote unquote. It had been licensed by Savage Worlds and they had published via Kickstarter several books called Savage Rifts. Now, the Rift system is notoriously difficult to put your wrap your head around. Like, I've tried writing Rift's Quest. I mean, there's just, there's very little material out there. It's all very DIY. They give you more tools than you will ever know what to do with. They have, one of their earliest books is like a weapon book with literally 200 pages of weapons and how much damage they do and their rate of fire and all this. Like, it's so customizable, it's out of control, but like, I don't have all day to write adventures, but I want to play it. So I'm like, all right, great, Savage Worlds, Savage Rifts. This sounds great. I can get the Savage Rifts source book, and I can run some Savage Rifts games, and then that way I'm in the, in the setting that I really want to play with my other friends, this futuristic setting, but I don't have to spend all my time forever writing quests. So I, I signed up to play one Savage Worlds game at Gen Con, but by the time I learned all this, the last time slot was like, 6 to 10 p.m. Saturday or something, which is prime time for playing board games and drinking, frankly. So I just blew that off as well. But I was excited. And I still want to check out Savage Rifts. I would just like to play a Savage Worlds game with someone who knows how to play it before I buy a bunch of books like I did with Arcanus and dive into that world. Notwithstanding, I had a lot of fun playing Starfinder, even if I skipped the Arcanus and Savage Worlds games that I had actually planned on going to. And, uh... In the future on this podcast, you're probably going to learn about me playing 5e Arcanus. 
the world of Shattered Empires. It's a cool setting, and I'm, I'm excited to get back into being the dungeon master, and I'm curious to see how my wife and many other people feel about the game. So that's it for Gen Con talk. Uh, I just wanted to do like a full episode while John is away. He will be returning with me very, very soon. We took the summer off. Remember when we announced that? Me neither, because we didn't announce it. We just stopped podcasting. Right after MartinCon 2018, like right after, in fact, I think the night we recorded the MartinCon 2018 podcast, four hours later, his wife went into labor. So, spoiler alert, John had another kid, and he'll be returning to tell that whole story, I'm sure, in excessive, excruciating, horrible detail as soon as he is back in the next couple weeks. The next episode of this podcast will actually be an interview that I did with the creator and mastermind of a game called Pro Wrestling X, a video game that's been in development for at least 10 years and has a cool story. So you look forward to that and then John later. But I wanted to get the Gen Con stuff kind of kind of out there so he doesn't, so he doesn't sit there and cry and say, well, you had so much fun at Gen Con because I couldn't go because I had a baby. I don't know what voice that was. In other gaming news, uh, just to wrap up quickly for those of you who A, made it this far, and B, have ever heard this show before, and C, care about my life whatsoever. In gaming news, I, over the summer, reached level 70 and caught up with all of the main story quests in Final Fantasy XIV. This is the first time I have ever reached the end of a massively multiplayer online RPG and reached what is, I guess, probably colloquially known as endgame. Endgame content in an MMO is interesting, you basically replay the hardest stuff over and over again to grind. Grinding is what it's called in the gaming world. You grind the same stuff to get better gear, which helps you grind it better, but then you can also do custom stuff like make custom outfits, and I don't fully understand it. So I reached the end game, and, and I'm like, I don't I don't really want to, f- like, fight Kafka, like, 30 hours in a row, or because Kafka is a optional boss it's really fun to fight in this game i like fighting kafka but not 30 hours in a row and it's like i don't i don't need this much mindless repetition so what i did instead was i found a bunch of quests just random random you know fetch quests around the the whole world of eorzea where you know someone's just like oh man i sure wish i could go hunting can you kill three things for me and then you just do that like a zillion times Anytime someone gives you a quest, there's a little icon on the map. So I went through all the maps and methodically removed all those icons by doing all the quests. So it's kind of like a weird obsessive compulsive compulsion that I had to just like, all right, let's clear the map so they're clean of all these weird icons. And then I will have fully immersed myself in the world by learning all these side stories and gained a couple levels as my other classes. So I found ways around it, but it's, it's been weird to be at the end of an MMO and uh, when John gets back, we'll maybe talk a little bit more about that and, and his experience doing Endgame and World of Warcraft. And if you are a nerd, which you have to be if you made it this far on the podcast, you can follow my website, CodyGoff.com, because soon my wife and I are going to be blogging a series where we review the best, worst, and weirdest episodes of Star Trek of the Original Series. We finished watching all 79 episodes of the original series. The pilot also was watched, by the way. I don't know if that's part of the 79 or not. We sat down and make a couple lists and be like, ah, what were the best, what were the worst, what were the most potentially 
problematic what were the funniest or the most thought-provoking so i'm gonna be releasing that on, on codygolf.com and uh yeah just if you like if you're a nerd i had never watched the original series before i was a next generation guy growing up and i saw a lot of deep space nine and voyager as well but uh it's interesting should be hopefully entertaining for for you nerds out there and other than that um Thank you to our sister show, Game Life Balance Australia. AC and Rob shamelessly plugged my day job podcast, The Curiosity Daily, which is a show that I do for my career. And they've been saying very, very nice things about it, which makes me feel weird because I'm used to men saying nice things, especially in this day and age in America. We live in the age of irony. No one has time to be vulnerable or sentimental. But here they are just being friends of the show and and giving my job a shout out, which is great because the more people actually pay attention to Curiosity Daily, the longer I'll actually be employed, which is a good thing generally. So thank you to the GLB Australia guys. You guys are great. If you want a regular, consistent, entertaining video game podcast, then please go to GameLifeBalanceAustralia.com and check them out. They actually release episodes every two weeks. They don't just say they will and then disappear randomly for two months because one had a kid and didn't tell you about it. They're just very funny, and I enjoy listening to their shows, even if they are completely wrong about the Nintendo 64 which I'll get into in the interview I did in my next episode of this podcast. is bringing it back around. You see what I did there? Look at all this. Tying it back together. Bringing it back. Bringing it back. Anyway, GameOfBalanceAustralia.com. There's links to that in the show notes. It's a great show. Uh, uh, go check that out. To wrap up, oh, man, it's been like talking to myself for an hour. What is this? Every other morning in my life? <laughs> Speaking of Game Life Balance Australia, this episode of their show is divisible by five. It's episode 65, which means it's Stream of Nonsense. Every fifth episode, the lads throw caution to the wind and set fire to their regular format for a free-form podcast extravaganza. So join your... This is their copy. Quote, So join your lovable hairy hosts, AC and Rob, as they discuss Marty McFly cosplay tips... Nerds that bully other nerds, Rob's sojourn in the beautiful city of Melbourne, video game themed restaurants, WarioWare Gold, Wonder Boy and Monster World, Belgiumarians, Anti-Jack, and the robust health benefits of regular tobacco consumption. End quote. They're so funny, it makes me angry. Also on the Gunna Geek Network at gunnageek.com, where you can find this and lots of other geeky podcasts. There's the On the Bubble podcast. This one's called The Fan Campaign to Save the Tom Ellis-led Fox Drama, Lucifer. This is On the Bubble, episode 26. In this episode, they look at the hashtag Save Lucifer campaign from May 2018 that convinced Netflix to give the canceled Fox comedy drama another day in the hellfire. I want to be in a hellfire. That sounds uncomfortable. Yeah, very uncomfortable. That's it. That's all I got. In my life, I've been swing dancing a lot. I like it. That's, that's pretty much where we're at now buy some board games from the links below i'll be back soonish with more stuff if you do like me in any way for some reason please consider checking out my other show curiosity daily it's a daily awesome podcast i do for my day job and anyone who listens or leaves a review or shares it with friends or helps in literally any way 
helps me be employed with an income. Like, I can't stress that enough. This show's great. This show's fun. Does nothing for me economically. That's fine. But uh, yeah, Curiosity Daily is a, a pretty fantastic show, if I do say so myself. So uh, you can find more about that on curiosity.com. There's also links in, in whatever. Anyway, I have been going on too long. This has been an episode of Game of Thrones US, and we'll be back real soon with some regular programming or irregular, whatever you want to call us. Game hard. Game hard.